Hi, and welcome to a very special breaking Supreme Court edition of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. And if you can't tell, my voice is giving me away. I am smiling ear to ear because this is such a massive, massive win for queer people under federal civil rights law. Today, the court, in a 6-3 opinion authored by Justice Gorsuch, wrote that LGBT people are protected from discrimination in employment under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. There are so many great pieces to this decision, and we're going to be covering them at length with Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal uh, cases here and abroad. And before we get into exactly what the court did, what it means, we are going to talk with Legal's president, Kristen Browdy, who has been fighting as a lawyer alongside all of us for years to make sure that courts understand that LGBT discrimination is discrimination because of sex. You can't take sex out of the equation. Uh, It is clear, even Gorsuch and the Chief Justice get this. Um, it's such a big win. So we're going to be talking with her and get her reaction. Um, We have so much to come. But this win was made possible through decades of hard work. In New York, we have been fighting and celebrating. When the Second Circuit ruled in our favor in an en banc opinion last year, that means the entire court But our work is not finished. Time and time again, the Trump administration has targeted LGBT people for discrimination. Just the other day, we were talking about how uh, the Trump administration released a, a regulation that came down and took out protections for transgender people in healthcare. That is looking really, really stupid now. <laughs> um, so it just goes to show that the work is not finished. We are going to have to keep fighting. Uh, there are critical gaps still in our federal non-discrimination laws in areas of public accommodation in particular. We really need Congress to step up and follow the Supreme Court and recognize what the American people already realize, which is LGBTQ people must be protected from discrimination. We need to pass the Equality Act. The Equality Act would write LGBT people into all existing federal law, and that is what we need. Um, I do want to make sure that today we are remembering two brave plaintiffs in these cases who are no longer with us. That's Amy Stevens, uh, who is the plaintiff in the transgender victory that we had uh, in Harris Funeral Homes, and Don Zarda, who is uh, the plaintiff in the uh, sexual orientation discrimination cases. Uh, We fight on in their names. Discrimination is real. This illustrates it. It is painful no matter where it occurs. It is the harm of being told that you aren't worthy of being treated like everyone else. And today, we are going to discuss what the Supreme Court did and what it means uh, for LGBT people right now, and what it doesn't mean for LGBT people right now, and what it's going to mean for all of the law going forward. Here we go. Hi, Kristen. How you doing? I'm good. (laughs) Just good, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry, you caught, you caught me talking to voters. Um, look, this, this, 
you know, we haven't had a lot to celebrate for Pride until today. And this is the best Pride celebration one could even dream of, much less imagine. This is every bit as big, if not bigger, than marriage equality. This says they can't discriminate against us. All right, all right. So you were there that that day when an oral argument. Did you think that this was the outcome that we were going to get? I was really worried. Judge Gorsuch, who wrote the decision, came out with the line about the massive social upheaval that would happen if transgender people were allowed to work in the workplace. And we're all sitting there thinking, doesn't he know that we're here? There had to be a half dozen trans lawyers in the courtroom that day, one of them actually on Amy Stevens' team, on the team that was presenting the case to him. Right. Wow. That moment was horrifying. Yeah. No, I, re- and, I remember at the time how you described that moment and, um, and, and to see it kind of come around and full-throatedly embrace, you know, gays, lesbians, bisexuals, but also transgender people as like clearly covered uh, by uh, Title Seven, it's just, it's a remarkable thing given the way that that oral argument seemed to go. It, it is remarkable in one way, but we shouldn't be too excited that Justice Gorsuch has come over to understand equality. He hasn't. Right. What Justice Gorsuch did in this decision was say, look, they may not have meant it that way when they wrote the law, but the law says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And that is what discrimination against LGBTQ people plainly is. And that's correct. So what he did was come up with a textualist reason to support us. Yeah. It had nothing to do with moral reasons. It had nothing to do with equity, equality, or anything else. He said, that's the way they wrote the law. I'm stuck with it. So I'm going to at least be intellectually honest and vote to protect everybody the way Congress wrote the law. Kristen, that's such an important point. This is such a conservative argument, and you can tell by the way that the the Chief Justice and Gorsuch were able to, you know, Gorsuch to write it and the Chief Justice to join it. Um, This is the way that the statute was written. If you absolutely believe in textualism, that's that was the outcome. It's what Scalia came out in the on-call decision. It's it's basically, you know, just dictated if you follow the words on the page. Um, but but the implications for LGBT people going forward, you know, regardless of the reasoning, this is massive for trans people, um, you know, under under the law. We're talking about protections for kids in schools, the healthcare regulation that Trump tried to get rid of, yes, uh, two days ago. I mean, all of that is is on the table now as protections, right? That's exactly right. I can't see how any one of those Trump rollbacks, not one of them, can survive this decision. And that is truly changing the landscape for LGBTQ people, and in particular, transgender people across the nation. And that is the best possible outcome, the best possible present for Pride Month, that one could even dream of. And you were there and, and saw Amy Stevens in the courtroom. Can you talk about what this, what this means, you know, because we're fighting in her name? We are fighting in her name. She's left us now. In fact, two of the plaintiffs in these cases, two of the three have right. left us now, but their estates will benefit and every LGBTQ person 
in the United States will also will also benefit as a result of these decisions. Uh, and it, it's just fabulous. And and I'll tell you what, I was so angered when I heard that oral argument. I was so outraged by Justice Gorsuch's massive social upheaval comment yeah. that in my other hat, I'm co-chair of the National Trans Bar Association, as well as the president of the LGBT Associate Bar Association of Greater New York. In my other association, I organized a mass swearing in of transgender attorneys before the full United States Supreme Court. And next April, that's gonna happen. That's and they are gonna be there, they are going to be there, and all nine justices will be there. I will be there to introduce 12 new transgender members of the United States Supreme Court bar. <laughs> and I'm gonna have the biggest smile on my face. That is so fantastic. Do you have a final message to lawyers across the country who are sitting there chomping at the bit now wondering what they should be doing if discrimination claims come across their desk? What this decision means is that those plaintiffs' lawyers should not think twice about taking on those cases because they will win. And that's massive. And on, on an even deeper level, it's massive for the people whose rights will be upheld, who will not be discriminated against. And you can't ask for more than that, especially on Pride Month. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're super busy. This is a historic day, and it's great to be able to share it with you. Take care. Okay, and now, as promised, we have Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes and Professor at New York Law School to give us his take on what happened today at the Supreme Court. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Okay. Feeling no pain at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a better day, isn't it? I mean, all of that waiting, all of that uh, anxiety. We didn't know what was going to happen. Your prediction, I think on our last podcast was, or you were hoping that Kagan had it and it came down on, uh, on the day that all the SCOTUS LGBT rights cases tend to come down. It was not by Kagan, but. I'm willing to get it a few weeks early. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, you know? Think? I've been, one of the things I've been thinking about is yeah. why is it Gorsuch yeah. writing rather than the chief justice? Because the chief justice was in the majority, which means he assigned the opinion. Mm. And he assigned it to Gorsuch. Uh, and uh, I think he, he probably didn't want Ginsburg to write this because he would think it would go too broad, you know. And uh, Gorsuch was going to take a narrow approach, presumably. Yes. And Roberts didn't want to write it because he's been excoriated enough by the conservatives for, for uh, other opinions. Uh, but I think it's very important that he joined this that he didn't write separately, that he, in fact, no one wrote separately. There are no concurring opinions. And the majority opinion is somewhat short by Supreme Court standards. But uh, I think he wanted to be on the right side of history. Uh, but I think also he wanted to have some control here. Why is discrimination on the basis of LGBT status sex discrimination? And can you talk about the way this case was decided? This is a textualist opinion. It's a very conservative opinion. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what the court decided and how they framed their decision? What was decided is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids employers 
from discriminating in hiring, discharge, and other terms and conditions of employment based on sex, among other things. It, it covers race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Sex was added as a floor amendment while Title VII was pending in Congress, where the whole act was pending in Congress. And uh, there's very little legislative history about what Congress intended. But from the date when this was taking place, 1964, uh, we know that no one was suggesting openly in Congress at the time that the Civil Rights Act should ban discrimination against gay people or discrimination against transgender people. In fact, a point that Alito makes in his dissent is that at the time, the phrase gender identity wasn't even a thing yet. I mean, we knew about transgender people. There were uh, sort of sensational newspaper reports about sex change operations in Denmark in the 1960s and things like that. So there was some emerging public consciousness about the existence of transgender people, but the terminology wasn't fixed yet. And in fact, they were usually referred to as transsexuals. Uh, so transgender entered the vocabulary later, and gender identity is a much, much later uh, uh, phrase, which I think was invented in part for legislative purposes. When people were proposing to amend state anti-discrimination laws or municipal ordinances to protect transgender people, they came up with the term gender identity as sort of a neutral phrase that could go in both ways. Everyone has a gender identity, whether it's consistent with their biological sex as identified at birth or inconsistent. So uh, Alito says, how could Congress have been thinking about this back then? We didn't even have these terms. And the answer is they didn't have to be thinking about it back then. And that's the point Gorsuch makes. And he really hangs his, heart, his hat on it to a great extent on Justice Scalia's comment in the Uncali case, the same-sex harassment case from 1999, that uh, we are not uh, governed by the intentions of our legislators, we're governed by the language, the statutes they adopt. We have to look at the statutes and figure out what they mean. And Gorsuch says, what discrimination because of an individual sex means, any discrimination which is motivated, at least in part, by their sex. That sex has something to do with it. It was a factor in the refusal to hire, the discharge, uh, the denial of a promotion, the unfair treatment, or whatever. Uh, and uh, he says, no one contests the point that when Congress used the word sex in 1964, they were referring to biological distinctions between male and female. No one is contesting that. He said, the test is whether sex is a but-for cause of an employment decision. But it doesn't have to be the sole cause. It doesn't have to be the primary cause. It just has to be a cause that, if absent, that decision would not have been taken. Uh, so he says, a statutory violation occurs if an employer intentionally relied, in part, on an individual sex. And to quote him, because discrimination on the basis of homosexuality or transgender status requires an employer to intentionally treat individual employees differently because of their sex, an employer who intentionally penalizes an employee for being homosexual or transgender also violates Title VII. What about the facts of the cases? We have three cases, two involving sexual orientation and one involving transgender, transgender status discrimination. Can you talk about the basic facts that were consolidated in these three cases and presented before the court? Donald Zarda, who uh, was a uh, skydiving instructor, 
he came out to a client, the client's boyfriend complained to the boss, the boss fired him. Uh, Bostock was a uh, much lauded uh, county employee for a youth program, uh, was winning awards and stuff like that, highly, but then he started playing with a, a gay recreational softball league and someone complained to the county and they fired him. And then, uh, of course, the story of Amy Stevens, particularly uh, heartrending. Uh, Amy Stevens was working as a uh, funeral director for Harris Funeral Homes uh, in the Detroit suburbs and had been struggling with uh, her gender identity for years and finally decided she's going to do the transition. And she sent a letter to her boss and she gets fired within days. Uh, so in, in each of these cases, an employee was penalized because they were gay or transgender. So what does Gorsuch decide here? What precedent is he relying on when he rules that Title VII covers LGBT people? He said that if we look at certain past precedents of the Supreme Court, we can see how the court has used the simple language of Title VII to discriminate because of an individual's sex in various contexts that might not have been anticipated by Congress in 1964. We're not limited by what Congress might have been thinking about in 1964 when they passed the statute, because in passing the statute, they adopted certain language that embraces a concept. And the concept is that uh, people who are applying for work, uh, who are working, uh, should not suffer discrimination because of their sex. He pointed to a case called Phillips versus Martin Marietta, where the company felt they didn't want to employ women who had young children at home because they felt that they would frequently be absent. They're dealing with childhood injuries and illnesses and all kinds of stuff. We just don't want the bother. So they wouldn't hire women with small children. And lower federal court said this wasn't sex discrimination. The Supreme Court reversed. I mean, clearly they're not discriminating against fathers with small children. They would hire them. So it's on its face, it was sex discrimination, but also Congress may not have anticipated this application of the statute, but the court didn't hesitate to embrace it. Another example, uh, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power versus Manhart, which was a case where the power authority in Los Angeles required women employees to pay in more to the pension fund than men because actuarial tables show that women on average live longer than men. And so they said uh, that women will be getting more benefit for their pension contribution because they're going to live longer to collect benefits. And the court said, well, that may be an actuarial fact, but Title VII focuses on individuals, not groups, the individual employee. And any individual woman might not live as long as any individual man. So you can't penalize someone because they're a member of a group of women. You have to deal with them as an individual, and all individuals have to be treated equally. Uh, and uh, that was not something that Congress would have anticipated. It wasn't even a unanimous decision. It was sharply criticized by Chief Justice Berger at the time in dissent. And then he looked, he, he pointed to Ancali, the same-sex harassment case. Uh, and he said, uh, clearly, Congress probably didn't even anticipate when they added sex to Title VII that they were protecting men from discrimination. They didn't think men needed to be protected from discrimination. One thing that might surprise our listeners is that the Ancali case that you reference was decided by Scalia. And of course, Gorsuch idolizes uh, Justice Scalia. Scalia said very specifically that uh, the application of Title VII is not limited to what the members of Congress 
thought they were addressing as the principal evils that they were opposing. And the principal evil they were concerned with was discrimination against women in the workplace. He said, the statute applies to comparable evils as long as they come within the scope of the language that Congress adopted. Uh, so Gorsuch ceases on these and he says, and he repeats it over and over again, and, and Alito uh, sort of accuses him of trying to argue by repetition rather than explanation. He just keeps saying over and over again, that an employer who discriminates against an employee because they are homosexual or transgender is discriminating because of sex, at least in part. And that's enough to bring it within Title VII. So we lost Justices Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Alito. Can you describe the dissenting opinions? The dissents, the dissents accuse the majority of legislating. Uh, Alito, uh, in a much more ferocious way. I can see why Kavanaugh dissented separately. Uh, Thomas signed on to Alito's dissent. Uh, and Alito is, he goes, you know, step by step through picking apart all of Gorsuch's arguments, all of his examples, everything else. Uh, and uh, he ultimately says, this is up, this is for Congress to do. And Kavanaugh says the same thing, but Kavanaugh is uh, rather more gentle in his language. And he has this, uh, statement at the end, which, you know, it's, it's, it echoes in some way uh, the uh, conclusion of Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in the Obergefell case, the marriage equality case, where he said, you know, some people will celebrate today and good for them, but it has nothing to do with the Constitution. Remember Roberts' statement? Well, Kavanaugh writes at the end of his dissent, notwithstanding my concerns about the court's transgression of the Constitution's separation of powers, it is appropriate to acknowledge the important victory achieved today by gay and lesbian Americans. Millions of gay and lesbian Americans have worked hard for many decades to achieve equal treatment in fact and in law. They have exhibited extraordinary vision, tenacity, and grit, battling often steep odds in the legislative and judicial arenas, not to mention in their daily lives. But then he says, under the Constitution's separation of powers, however, I believe that it was Congress's role and not this court's to amend Title VII. I therefore must respectfully dissent from the court's judgment. Well, as far as amending Title VII, if you, if you think of this as an amendment, Alito says what they're doing is they're basically enacting the Equality Act pending in Congress. And this uh, helps to explain the significance of this. I mean, one way of looking at this, this is just a tweak to Title VII. It basically says that Title VII now, prior to this decision in the Second Circuit, which is based in New York, and in the Seventh Circuit, which is based in Chicago, people who have employment discrimination claims covered by Title VII because of their sexual orientation or gender identity could go in and file the claims. Okay. This just means the rest of the country as well. Uh, but Title VII only applies if the employer has at least 15 employees. So if you work for a small business, Title VII doesn't apply. Uh, but Alito points to the reasoning of the decision, I and mean, the holding of the decision just is just Title VII, but the reasoning of the decision could theoretically apply to all of the federal statutes that in some context ban discrimination because of sex. Now, because of the peculiar wording of Title VII, that might not be accurate for all of them. Okay, well, maybe it's not accurate for all of them, but there are some broad implications here 
uh, for other federal statutes, because as you've told us, courts look to interpretations of Title VII in interpreting other federal statutes, for example, the Fair Housing Act, the Affordable Care Act, Title IX, and the Education Amendments. So can you talk about the broad implications of today's decision and how it might affect all those various areas? What Alito has done, in order to, in order to uh, scold the court for deciding, in effect, so many other cases, in this case, uh, he had his clerks put together an appendix which is attached to his dissent, listing more than 100 federal statutory provisions that they claim. I mean, I haven't gone through and checked them out, obviously. This decision just came down this morning, but I think people are going to be busy looking at them. Uh, that more than 100 federal statutes prohibit sex discrimination in some form or another. And as long as they don't say primarily because of sex or solely because of sex, this decision would apply to them. And uh, the most important ones that are the subject of uh, a fair amount of litigation are Title IX, uh, which governs the uh, practices of uh, educational institutions that receive federal financial assistance, which is uh, all except the religious ones, I would say. It's, it's the, uh, and, and the Trump administration is, is working hard to send money to religious institutions as well. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a fertile area of, uh, of litigation over two issues. One is bullying of uh, LGBT students, mainly in high schools. And the other is uh, access to uh, single-sex facilities by transgender students. Uh, Title, Title IX doesn't generally apply to uh, employment practices at educational institutions. It applies to uh, students. They're supposed to be afforded equal educational opportunity without regard to sex. Uh, so uh, the Obama administration back in 2016, in response to litigation uh, by Gavin Grimm in Virginia, a transgender boy who was trying to use the men's uh, facilities, the boys' facilities in his high school, uh, the Obama administration issued a guidance uh, to all uh, public school districts in the country saying that transgender students under Title IX are entitled not to be discriminated against because of their gender identity and setting out a, a rather detailed code of conduct for the schools, like respecting their name choices and not misgendering them and uh, allowing them to participate uh, in athletics, for example, which is being heavily contested right now. Uh, there's a lawsuit in Connecticut on file by some uh, female college athletes, uh, high school athletes rather, who claim they're being subjected to unfair competition by having to compete with transgender girls. Uh, so this is an issue that plays out in many different forums on Title IX. And courts in Title IX cases have generally followed Title VII precedents on the meaning of sex discrimination. So that's an important one. Another one is the Fair Housing Act. And we have uh, a controversy uh, in the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development we have an opinion that came out that uh, excluded transgender women from women's uh, homeless shelters. It's being litigated. So whether the Fair Housing Act covers that, covers transgender uh, people, is an important issue. Uh, we have the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and we have the Affordable Care Act. And here it's very timely because just last week on Friday, the Trump administration unveiled the final version of their regulation, withdrawing protection against discrimination 
for transgender people under the Affordable Care Act. But the Affordable Care Act, it's, it's interesting. Uh, instead of listing categories of forbidden kinds of discrimination, what Congress did in the Affordable Care Act was say, uh, you can't discriminate under the Affordable Care Act uh, with respect to any of the categories listed in the following anti-discrimination laws. So one of them is Title VII. So this Title VII ruling immediately applies by reference to uh, the Affordable Care Act. So those lawsuits that were filed on Friday afternoon against this new regulation uh, look like slab duck winners. Uh, wow. You know, we, we do have this problem that uh, Trump and, uh, and you know McConnell have been busy stocking up the federal courts with right-wing anti-gay judges. Uh, so who knows what's going to happen? Uh, I've also seen some uh, some immediate online criticism of Kavanaugh's little uh, screed at the end of his opinion for not mentioning transgender people. And the interesting thing, also, if you look at Gorsuch's opinion, is he doesn't mention transgender people very much either. Almost all of his examples and things have to do with gay people. Uh, and frequently in his rhetoric, he, he just talks about homosexuality. Uh, but he does mention uh, transgender and gender identity enough to make it clear, especially in his introductory comments, that this opinion applies to both. And the upshot of the case, uh, at the end, he indicates that they are overruling the 11th Circuit, which denied Gerald Bostock's sexual orientation claim, but they're affirming the Second Circuit, which uh, authorized uh, the Zarba case to go forward, and they affirmed the Sixth Circuit, which ruled on the merits in favor of Amy Stevens, who unfortunately passed away just you know days ago, really. It's a shame she didn't uh, live to see this victory. So you mentioned a bunch of contexts. Can you talk, we, we talk at length about the transgender military ban. What right. impact do you think briefly this uh, decision might have on that ongoing litigation? Well, that's a 14th Amendment case. Uh, that's basically an equal protection case. But I would say that the court's uh, discussion of why discrimination based on gender identity necessarily involves discrimination because of sex certainly carries over. Mm -hmm. uh, and But we already have quite a few good circuit precedents from around the country on uh, gender identity discrimination being subjected to heightened scrutiny as a form of sex discrimination. This just reinforces that. It's, it's just one more very strong argument that, uh, that can be made by analogy. Uh, but this is basically a statutory interpretation case. And, and we should do a shout out here to our legal member, Greg Antolino, who was trial counsel and counsel in the Second Circuit uh, to Don Zarda and to Don Zarda's estate after he passed away in a skydiving accident. Uh, so uh, Greg has to be felling today, uh, although he, uh, he backed off and, uh, and uh, basically assisted the estate in selecting someone else to argue in the Supreme Court. There's another Greg that we should mention, certainly Greg Nivens at Lambda Legal, right. head up, headed up their uh, employment fairness litigation. And then, of course, High Feldblum at the EEOC. Uh, at the EEOC. And it, it's important. It's, this is an, another interesting point. When the EEOC, back in 2013, uh, issued its Macy decision on transgender discrimination, a decision that was certainly stimulated by High Feldblum's champion, and, and you read the decision and you say, that's high. <laughs> you know, it's in her voice. Uh, but what you always, what you come down to in the end is the idea that it's really about sex. Okay, so just so we don't get too comfortable, can you talk right. about the religious uh, discrimination oh, case right. in Fulton 
the city of Philadelphia, which is coming down the pike and which could kind of blow a hole in this. If and, Go and there's a problem here. There's, there's this little poison pill that's buried right towards the end of Gorsuch's opinion, which you know I have to tell people uh, about. Uh, the question whether this interpretation will compromise the constitutional protection of free exercise for religion of employers. Yeah. Uh, and thinking back to the Hobby Lobby case from several years ago, the court said that it is possible under federal statutory law for a business to claim free exercise of religion. Uh, now, that was a case of a big national corporation that uh, has thousands of outlets around the country and everything, but is owned by a very small, close-knit group. It's not a publicly traded corporation. Uh, it's uh, a bunch of people who are devout Catholics. And they were unhappy with the Affordable Care Act's requirement that their employee benefits plan uh, cover birth control for women. And they claimed it, it put an undue burden on their free exercise of religion. And the court uh, said, yes, they have a claim under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so the issue is, to what extent might the Religious Freedom Restoration Act give employers a defense against a sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination claim. And uh, people who've been listening to our podcast for many years now know that in the Harris Funeral Homes case, the employer raised a Religious Freedom Restoration Act claim and actually won on that claim in the federal district court. Uh, it was reversed by the Sixth Circuit. Uh, and they didn't include that in their petition to the Supreme Court for review. So that question was not up for review before the court. Uh, but uh, what Justice Gorsuch writes here, he says, because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act operates as a kind of super statute, displacing the normal operation of other federal laws, it might supersede Title VII's commands in appropriate cases. But he doesn't say what they might be. I mean, that is just really, really significant because now you are talking about a case that's coming down for the Supreme Court to decide next term where they could say, okay, Title VII bars discrimination against gay, bisexual, transgender people all across the country in workplace discrimination cases. However, you can have as an employer an affirmative defense of saying, I did it because these are my core religious beliefs. I don't believe in marriage equality. I believe that gender identity is fixed at birth. And so I don't believe trans people are real based on my religion. That's the problem that we might have uh, with this case. And that's why the Fulton v. City of Philly case is so uh, important. So we won today, but our rights are still at stake tomorrow. And in her dissenting opinion in Hobby Lobby, Justice Ginsburg wrote, but what about sexual orientation? She said the court uh, mentions a race, but they, they don't mention sexual orientation. What about those cases? And nobody knows. So there is a potential battleground there. Uh, especially with the Trump administration encouraging employers with religious objections to homosexuality or to transgender status to discriminate away, and the federal government will support you. Uh, the federal government was an amicus in this case, decided today, and they argued uh, in favor of the funeral home and in favor of Zarda's employer, Altitude Express, and against Gerald Bostak. But you know, a practical point for practitioners uh, to, to think about 
you now have more options than you had before if you are outside the second or seventh circuit. You can add a Title VII claim to your discrimination case. And of course, in a state where you don't have state law protection, you now have federal protection. Uh, but you have strategic decisions to make if you're in a state where you do have federal protection. That is, do you want to be in federal court? Especially with all the judges that Trump has appointed. I think at this point he's appointed about a third of the federal judiciary yeah. in his first three years in office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the role of the wheel might give you a very, very conservative district judge. Yeah. And you might get a very conservative panel uh, because he's really been, he's really focused heavily on filling up the courts of appeals. So uh, you may prefer to be in state court. Now, of course, now that there's a federal question there, the employer can remove you to federal court. But you, you, know, think, you, you have strategic decisions. Do you think state courts are going to look to this decision and in interpreting their local ordinances or state laws that just make effects? We have two states, at least two, possibly three states, in which this is happening now. The Missouri Supreme Court has actually already picked up on some of this jurisprudence and has interpreted their sex discrimination provision to cover sexual orientation. Uh, The uh, Michigan uh, Civil Rights Commission has adopted this uh, interpretation, although the courts yet have yet to approve it in Michigan. And in Pennsylvania, I believe the state agency is also uh, going in this direction. We've had uh, LGBT rights bottled up in the Pennsylvania legislature for a long time. Uh, It's possible that as a result of this, we'll be able to achieve more legislative advances in a few more states. Yeah. Because this is the Supreme Court speaking and saying that sex discrimination actually encompasses uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. That may uh, persuade some state legislatures to move forward. I mean, we, we did pick up Virginia in the past year, and uh, there are possibilities in other legislatures. There are bills pending in Pennsylvania. In Idaho, I believe there's a bill pending. There are other places where there are uh, Ohio also and Indiana where there are attempts being made. I mean, the uh, the argument in Indiana was partly, well, now that the Seventh Circuit covers this, why don't we just go ahead and give our state agency jurisdiction to deal with these cases? Mm. Uh, So now that we have the Supreme Court decision, that Seventh Circuit opinion, which was not appealed, is final. Wow. and uh, there, of course, are a lot of adverse opinions in other circuits, but they are implicitly overruled by this opinion today. Art, you are a student of history. You know so much about LGBT rights, litigation, and the movement. Can you put this decision in perspective for us? What was your reaction? What does it mean? What is its scope? Uh, how important is it? But, but it seems to me, I mean, this is, this is the culmination of something that began in the 1950s. You know, people say Stonewall, that's the beginning, but everyone who's looks at the history knows that in terms of an active gay rights movement in this country, the seeds were in the 1950s, the Mattachine Society in Los Angeles uh, and branches in other places, the Daughters of Belitis, the Gay Activist Alliance and other things. Many of these things, or some of these things, predate Stonewall. And so uh, the agenda the gay agenda, as it were, and there were gay agendas. There were lists of demands that were published even back in the 50s. And protection against discrimination because of employment was always prominently on those lists, especially considering that back during the Eisenhower administration, the president issued an executive order against employing gay people in the federal government. So there was very overt discrimination. And uh, this has always been a name of the movement. 
So this is the, the culmination of something going back basically 70 years. 70 years we've been struggling on this. Uh, we didn't get uh, state statutory protections. We started to get them in the 1980s, a trickle at first. Uh, and now we have still less than half of the states. Um, I think we have 23 now. And on gender identity, uh, a few, uh, fewer than 23. But uh, there's been incredible legislative progress, but we've come to the point where it's become more and more difficult to add more states. And there are significant stretches of the country where there's no protection at all. Right. This is an important decision, especially for the southeastern United States and the Rocky Mountain states, right? Uh, in particular, Texas. You know, this is going to be a big deal for, for gay people in Texas. Florida. <laughs> I mean, in Florida, yeah. You know, you, if you read law notes every month, you see that we frequently have cases, and, and they're frequently pro se cases, because someone who's represented by someone who does their research isn't going to bother. But uh, there are, are LGBT people who lose their jobs or turn down for a job, and they run into court on their own, and they file suit because they believe it's illegal to discriminate against them. And they lose because there's no state law, uh, and uh, they are not living or working in a municipality that has an ordinance, although we have a lot of those in the South now, but they don't happen to live in one of them. Uh, and there's no federal protection. So now there's federal protection. Well, Art, thank you so much for joining us today. This is certainly a momentous occasion for the LGBTQ rights movement, uh, historic day. Thank you for joining us on this Breaking News podcast. It's always nice to hear from you about what the court actually did and why it's important. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found online at iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Visit us there, give us five stars, leave a comment. It's how other people discover us. We will be back next week with the Law Notes episode of this podcast.